Hebrews is building and building its arguments and thoughts on who Christ is so far, all the while to get to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Hebrews is tying all of these threads together to make this one point. Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek, far superior than any Levitical priesthood. Jesus does his priestly work not only as a servant, but as God's son, who sits at his right hand. And Jesus carries out his work in heaven itself, not just its copy. Verses 3 and 5 explain the importance of Jesus' place in heaven. The tabernacle and all of its associated ritual, worship, and sacrifice was only a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. Hebrews looks to Exodus 25:40 when Moses is instructed to build the tabernacle and notices that it was built according to the pattern of what he was shown. This means that as far as Hebrews is concerned, that the tabernacle was only a pale imitation of things up in heaven. And now that Jesus has come, we can do away with the imitations and enjoy the true reality of things. And so again, back to verse 1, the point is that we have all of this through Jesus. And now that we have all of these better things, Jesus is also giving us a better covenant. In verse 6, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. This doesn't mean that the Old Covenant is something to be looked down on or ignored. Its fault, as far as Hebrews was concerned, is that it was only designed to go so far. Its purpose was to point us to the greater work of Jesus. It was a pattern that we could learn from, but it wasn't the goal. And this might have been hard news to hear from any Jewish audience, especially considering passages such as Psalm 119, which boasts of the law's excellence and beauty. So Hebrews points our attention to a very important passage found in Jeremiah. Starting in Hebrews 8 verse 7, we read that if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So if there was nothing wrong or lacking in that first covenant, then God would have never needed to establish a second. And this is the thought that had been given all the way back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people are received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The most obvious deficiency of the law was that it couldn't save. In our failure to keep it, God finds fault with us. We don't obey, and therefore we don't receive life. Instead, we disobey and find God's wrath on us. So we need a covenant that can overcome our weakness in obeying God. So by quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Hebrews shows us that God had every intention of replacing the old covenant with something better, something that could save us. Starting again in verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So our passage here mentions the core felling of us and the old covenant, 
Nobody continued in it, and as a result, God had no concern for them. So here's the solution. God's going to make a new covenant. Picking up again in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This new covenant is going to be like a radical heart surgery, God says. He had promised that all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where he would take his people back after their rebellion and fix that core rebelling issue, the heart. Under the new covenants, following God isn't an obligation or a chore, it's the desire of our hearts. And when we read about everyone knowing God, it means that only those who know God are going to be a part of that covenant. Under the old one, you were circumcised as a child, and boom, you belonged to God's people. But the love and knowledge of God would have only been taught to them over the years. But now, only those who have undergone that radical heart surgery are among God's people. And we need to remember that, that we belong to God not because we've done any kind of external ritual, but because we love and obey him. It's not because your parents brought you to church. It's not because you read your Bible occasionally. It's not because we show up to services whenever the doors are open. You belong to the new covenant because you have been transformed in heart to follow Jesus. And now, under new covenant, the point is this. We have Jesus. And as he intercedes to us, God says that he's going to be merciful towards us and he is going to forget all of our sins. <laughs> 